The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, guys, when I was a young boy, uh, a, a sports fanatic by all accounts, I had the privilege of playing baseball for my dad. And uh, he really was the best coach that I could have ever asked for. He was extremely knowledgeable about the game, and he was passionate patient and prepared, and, and most of all, he was invested in each and every one of his players, so much so that he just wanted to see us thrive and succeed. So he worked his butt off to get us to where we needed to be, to, to watch us grow and, and get better. In essence, we were his baseball disciples, and if someone were to ask me what our practices were like back in the day, no doubt the one thing I remember more than anything else was that we worked a ton on fundamentals. We focused so much on fundamentals uh, that we often learn lessons over and over and over again in an attempt to gain mastery. And we often did the same drills over and over again to become exceedingly skilled at our craft. So for example, if you were an infielder on our team after going through the same warm-ups every practice and the same stretches and of course uh, warming up your arm with purpose, you could expect to take ground ball after ground ball, after ground ball. If you were a shortstop or playing second base and we were working on turning a double play, right? Where we were taught the proper technique, proper footwork, and then we practiced over and over and over again. And that same thing went for every single position on the field. And the trick was, if we'd gone through something time and time again in practice, when we got to the game, it was all second nature. We didn't have to think about it. We didn't have to wonder what to do because we knew exactly what to do because we were prepared. And again, we were prepared because my dad was a great coach and a great teacher. He always had a plan and we practiced and again, lessons were repeated frequently. I was thinking of that as we looked at our text this morning in Mark chapter 8, because in verses 1 through 21 of Mark chapter 8, we're really going to get a glimpse of not just a great uh, teacher like my dad, but the perfect and patient teacher, Jesus Christ. We're going to see him teaching and instructing his disciples and those around him concerning some eternal things, much deeper and more valuable than just the game of baseball Uh, But there are some similarities here that that I really want to see as we begin to read this text. And and I just want to lay this out. You don't have to write this stuff down at all. But here are a few things that we're going to see as we venture through these 21 verses. First, uh, we're going to see Jesus' compassionate care for those under his charge. This is nothing new. We've seen this in Mark over and over again. Uh, Next, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this, we're going to see him patiently repeat a lesson so that his disciples can grow in their understanding. Thirdly, we're going to see Jesus deal with those who want nothing to do with him. And lastly, we're going to see him correct and rebuke his disciples as they're seemingly focused on and concerned with the wrong things altogether. And I know that's a lot. Again, I really do feel like there's a feast for us this morning if we're willing to to focus up and walk through this and put in the work to mine the treasures on the backside of it. So if you would, uh, read with me. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 is where we're going to be. 
And uh, we'll read verses 1 through 9, and then we'll chat about it. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because I've been, or they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets in full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. I love these first 16 words. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. After just those first words, those of us that have been venturing through Mark probably realize uh, that this scenario sounds pretty familiar, right? I mean, here we go. Jesus again. I love how it uses that word too. Surrounded by many thousands of people. Everyone was hungry because they've been listening to Jesus teach. After getting a few loaves of bread and a few fish, Jesus blesses the food and then miraculously turns these into a feast for everybody there. And again, if you're just jumping into Mark, maybe this is the first time you've been a heritage in a long time. We're stoked you guys are here. Uh, maybe you're reading this and you're just going, wow, this is awesome. Just the fact that Jesus can turn a few loaves of bread and a few fish into a feast for 4,000 should really blow your mind. But, but if you've been following along, then, then maybe you do remember that it was just two chapters ago in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus did pretty much the same thing but fed 5,000 plus. And I don't know about you, but maybe, maybe you're like me and that you read through this story and your first question is, is why, why does Jesus do this twice? Why does Mark record it twice? Why does the Holy Spirit inspiring Mark's writing include this again? And, and after doing some digging, I do believe that there are some reasons. And, and to figure out why it is that this account, this feeding of the 4,000 is here, I think what we need to do is revisit the last account, the feeding of the 5,000, and pick up some small details in those so that we can start piecing together a, a solution to the question as to why this is here. So if you're down, let's just walk through the feeding of the 5,000 real quick. You don't have to flip anywhere. Uh, but I want to first go back to John chapter 6. And one of the things that we're going to see uh, in John chapter 6 is a clue or a hint as to why Jesus was uh, what he was teaching with the 5,000, what he may be teaching with the feeding of the 4,000. And really, I want to see if Jesus was possibly repeating a similar miracle in order to teach a lesson a second time with perhaps even more depth. So John chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus gets into the boat, goes to the other side of the sea, 
And then the next morning, the crowd realizes that he's over there, and the crowd follows him over there. But Jesus doesn't hold anything back. He makes it very clear. He says, look, I know that the reason you're coming to me is just because you want free food. And it's here where we get a clue as to what Jesus was trying to teach. In the rest of John chapter 6, he lays it out very clear. Beginning in verse 27, when he tells the crowd, Hey, I know you're just after food, but listen, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. The people went on to request a sign and they cited the Old Testament story of manna being provided in the desert for the people of Israel. And Jesus responds to this in verses 32 through 33 saying this, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. All of this led to Jesus' famous claim that he was indeed the bread of life. If you remember, he said things like this, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And while I could literally talk about John 6 for hours, I could dive into that forever. I just want to pause here and be content with knowing that probably among other things, uh, that Jesus was using the feeding of the 5,000 not only to compassionately provide for those that were sitting under his care, but also to teach them that he was the bread come down from heaven, sent by the Father, the bread of life. And if you guys remember... I don't know how familiar you are with this text, but if you guys remember, this was a provocative teaching in John 6. It was after this teaching that tons of people dispersed. They left. Right? They thought he was talking about some weird cannibalism stuff. Like, he basically said, hey, drink my blood, eat my flesh. If you do this, you will never die. You'll have eternal life. And everybody's like, whoa, okay, I'm down with the miracles. I'll watch you heal somebody. I'm always game for free food, but this is too much for me. And a lot of people left. And then famously, he turns to his disciples. He's like, hey, are you guys going to go as well? And they're like, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? But you have the words to eternal life. Where else can we go? So the disciples hang out. The disciples hang out. But this is where this gets interesting. And hang with me. I know we're jumping everywhere. uh, But I want to come back to Mark with all of that context in mind. And in Mark 6, 52, there's one verse in there that I think brings clarity as to what we're reading back in Mark chapter 8. It kind of connects the whole thing when it comes to the bread of life and the confusion there. And the disciples thinking that what Jesus is saying doesn't make any sense because he's talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. And in Mark 6.52, we get this one verse that was quite confusing the first time around when we read it, but now it seems to make more sense in light of the account of the feeding of the 4,000. And it's just this simple verse. Speaking of the disciples, Mark 6.52, if you want to underline it, you can. It says this, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves But their hearts were hardened. 
So this is Mark's account after the feeding of the 5,000, probably after the John 6 thing, all of the teaching of the bread of life, the disciples are like, I don't get it. I don't understand about the loaves. So first things first, one of the first things we see, perhaps one of the first answers to the question, why did Jesus do this again? Why a similar miracle and only two chapters later in the book of Mark? And I would say this, as a patient and understanding teacher, Jesus finds the need to repeat a similar miracle to one that he's already done to aid his disciples in understanding what it was that he had for them to learn. I mean, this is, this is teaching 101. I think about baseball practices, doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, I see Mrs. Merritt down here teaching math class, which is possibly the worst place a human being could ever be, in my humble opinion. Because <laughs> my teacher tried to teach me the same things over and over again, but I never understood it, ever. So that led to many bad grades, but it's okay. Right, fundamentals, reps, this is what Jesus is doing. And, and as we walked through sermon development, this is one of the themes that we saw. Our own Dr. Townsend has been doing sermon development with us, and, and he wrote down this simple thing. He said, we should always take note when an author repeats something, especially this, capital A, author. It's like, okay, wait, 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 Jesus is doing something twice. Let's pause, let's figure out what it is that he's trying to teach us as he does this. There's actually more to this. There's actually more to the story of the, the feeding of the 4,000. Upon further digging, we see that although this was a similar miracle, it was in fact in a different location to a different people group. And this matters. Let me explain. Uh, the crowd at the feeding of the 5,000 was primarily Jews. In comparison, the 4,000 in Mark 8 are primarily Gentiles. We know this because this is, uh, Jesus is in a place called the Decapolis, heavy Gentile population. And this is important for a few reasons, okay? When Jesus taught that he was the bread of life after feeding the 5,000, it perhaps would have been easy for those listening to assume that he was the bread of life for the Jews only. Here's 5,000 Jews, the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the nation of Israel. If you remember throughout the scriptures, a lot of people really didn't understand what Jesus as Savior really meant. They were thinking way too small. So here's Jesus feeding 5,000, teaching this lesson about how he's the bread of life. But, but that was just Jews. And interestingly enough, uh, I'm not a huge numbers guy in the Bible. I think we've got to be really careful when looking at numbers. But it is interesting that after that feeding of the 5,000, there are 12 baskets left over. This surplus of food, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's like this perfect fit. Jesus saying, look, the bread of life is sufficient for the entire nation of Israel. But... As we know, God's plan of redemption and salvation was much 
greater. It was global, in fact. It wasn't just for the Jews. And so here we see again that the similar miracle, a similar lesson, but this time he doesn't feed a group of 5,000 Jews showing that he's the bread of life to the Jewish nation, but instead this time he does the same thing, but to a group of Gentiles showing that he is indeed the life-giving bread from God, not just for Jews, but for the entire world. And again, I don't look too much into this, but how curious that again, after the feeding of the 4,000 with the Gentiles, it's not 12 baskets left over like for the 12 tribes of Israel, but but seven. This number of completion, the scriptures, number of perfection. Again, we see this theme all over the New Testament, but it's here again, and really we'll just call it Gentile inclusion. We see in the feeding of the 4,000 this idea that the the gospel of Jesus Christ, the eternal life found in Jesus Christ, the grace found in Jesus Christ was not just reserved for some, but it is available for all. And this makes sense. If you guys remember just last week, talked about the the Syrophoenician woman. The Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, help me out. Jesus says, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread or Israel's bread and throw it to the dogs or Gentiles. But she answered in humility, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. It's this awesome picture of, of how it is that one can sit at the master's table through faith. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, your ethnic background or your race, but instead the, the bread from the master's table. We see with the Syrophoenician woman, we see at the feeding of the 5,000, we see with the feeding of the 4,000, the bread from the master's table was sufficient for all. As Pastor Jeremy put it in our huddle group curriculum for this week, he said, Jesus is provision from God for the needs of man. Providing life and satisfaction and sustenance for any who would come to him in faith. Again, regardless of ethnicity, the the redemptive plan of God was and still is global. So the first thing with the feeding of the 4,000, and that's a really long way to say this, but, but I want us to see with clarity that the bread of heaven, the bread of God, is indeed sufficient for all. And yet, as we continue on in our text, we're going to see that not everyone would eat of the bread. But some would have hard hearts and they'd willfully reject the truth. About Jesus. Would you read with me verses 10 through 13 of Mark chapter 8 as we move on? And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Hmm. Again, if you've been with us in Mark up to this point, then this should come as no surprise. 
Here we see the Pharisees coming to Jesus and they just begin to argue with him, trying to test him and trying to trap him. In the first group of people, we saw, we saw 4,000 people listening to Jesus teach for three whole days. At the very least, they're curious, they're interested, perhaps they're exploring the truth, but that stands in stark contrast to what we read here. These, these Pharisees weren't genuinely seeking to know if Jesus who or was who he claimed to be. They had already made up their minds. They were, they were just coming to argue and test. In fact, they're vehemently opposed to him. Yeah, with the Pharisees, we see hard hearts and a willful rejection of the gospel of Christ. And this is where our text gets a little intimidating and a little scary, as Jesus would have absolutely none of it. After their questions and their testings, Jesus, being grieved and frustrated, gives us a glimpse into his humanity as he sighs deeply in response to the hardness of these men. As I walk through this, you have to wrestle at this point uh, with what we call the, the hypostatic union. You have Jesus, fully God, yet fully man. And, and, and already in Mark, we've read that Jesus himself taught that the heart of man cannot be trusted. Remember he said that it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you, but it's what comes out, ultimately showing us that, that the heart is deceitfully wicked. That's the thing that can't be trusted. And, and that flies really in the face of our culture as we constantly hear, follow your heart, do whatever your heart says. And I think when you're a follower of Christ, you just have to put a pause next to that and say, ooh, I don't know, can my heart be trusted? I need to bring my heart before the Lord and submit to his word long before I submit to my emotions and my feelings on something. But Jesus already knows that men are wicked. He knows the hearts of men. But here we get a glimpse again into Jesus's humanity. Because although he knows that the heart the hearts of men are hard. Right here he's experiencing it. As he gets in the boat, is bombarded with questions and arguing, and he just sighs kidding me and after responding by saying that this generation will not receive a sign Jesus does perhaps the scariest thing uh, that he could ever do to a people that have rejected him it's found in verse 13 it says this and he left them got into the boat again and went to the other side After a sigh and after harsh words, Jesus ultimately says, I'm done, and gets right back in the boat, and he just leaves. The implications of that are really, really scary. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, we see this same theme explored. If you have a Bible, would you flip over to Romans 1 real quick? Because I, I just can't read this text in Mark about, about Jesus leaving without thinking of Romans 1. And I, and I really want to make sure that we get this. Because here, here in Mark, what we have is these Pharisees, right? They're, they're saying, hey, give us a sign. But the reality is that Jesus has already done so many things up to this point. 
No doubt they'd seen him perform miracles. No doubt they'd seen signs. But again, their hearts were hard and they just wanted nothing to do with Jesus. So in a way, a word that comes to mind because of Romans 1 is these Pharisees knew about Jesus, but they were suppressing the truth about him. They're rejecting him and they just didn't want to submit to him as Lord. And Romans 1 talks about how people do that today. And it also speaks of the reality that Jesus very much much like he did in our text in Mark 8, oftentimes will, uh, will in a way get in a boat and leave to the other side, leaving those who reject him and suppress the truth to their own devices. And Romans 1.18, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. In verse 24, it says there, Therefore, God gave them up. The Pharisees and and the people being addressed in Romans 1 are are quite in different positions perhaps, but but the the truth is still there. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased passion. Mind Three times in Romans 1, we see something similar to what we're seeing in Mark chapter 8. It's like God, in His mercy, is holding people back, like grabbing the back of their collar, holding them back from indulging in their every desire as an act of grace. God pursues and He pursues and has mercy, but as people reject and reject and suppress and suppress, eventually there can come a time, and I don't know when it is, when Jesus will actually let go and allow people to indulge in every perverse thing that their hearts desire. Allow them to continue uh, to live for themselves and not submit to Jesus. Only to find that the consequences of doing such things are just as brutal as God said they would be in his word in the first place. And I mentioned this, but I just want to make something very clear because I feel like upon saying that, maybe there's some people in this room that are like, ha, I knew it. I knew that God would leave me. I knew that God, he always bails in, in times of trouble. He's never really there for me. So this sounds just like the God that I imagine. I, I would push back against that hard and say absolutely not. One thing we need to understand to provide clarity for both Mark 8 and Romans 1 is this, that our God is a pursuer. 
This is what he does. He pursues lost sheep. John 6, the text that we were in earlier, tells us that God draws people to himself. That the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, reminds them of the truth, points people back to Jesus. John Piper calls God the hound of heaven, and it proves to be a fitting name as we read that Jesus indeed came to seek and save the lost. The gospel is a story of God pursuing people who have rebelled against him and who have sinned against him and want nothing to do with him, all because of his great grace and love. Listen, my point is this. You and I are Christians, not not because we're better than those who haven't believed, not because you or I in our own strength uh, on some journey, a spirituality found this God who was hiding, just waiting to see who had what it took to find him in the darkness. No, we're Christians because God had loved us and he's chosen us and he's pursued us, and he's redeemed us to the praise of his glorious grace. And we even see evidence of this pursuit in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus himself is the one that got in the boat with his disciples and went to the shore where the Pharisees were. God is a pursuer, which makes these texts about God letting go when somebody keeps pushing back and rejecting or, or when Jesus gets in the boat and leaves, it makes these texts all the more sobering. All the more sobering. And so I feel like right here, uh, as we flip our Bibles back over to Mark chapter 8, I do just want to speak to those in the room that are perhaps in this state. Look, I don't know what's causing it. Maybe, maybe you're just bitter. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe there's just pain and frustration. Questions that you have that you just can't find an answer to. And, and through one thing or another, you found yourself angry with God. Upset. Perhaps you know the truth of God's word, but you've been rejecting it and suppressing it. Then I would ask you to take these things into consideration. This is scary stuff, guys. And here's my confidence. If you're here in that spot, listen... The fact that you are here this morning, or maybe you're listening online, seeker, and and maybe somebody dragged you to church and you didn't want to be here, but the fact that you are here is evidence that God is not done pursuing you. God commands all people everywhere to repent in Him and His grace. He's given you that opportunity Today, so, so the call is this, to surrender your life to Jesus. Please, don't continue to suppress or, or reject or deny as Jesus confronts you with the truth and pursues you. Because as we just read, my great fear is this, that Jesus, in striving with you and butting heads with you, that ultimately he would take a deep breath, he would sigh, and he would say, oh man, I don't know what to do, and he'd get back into his boat after just a short interaction, and he would leave your shore to go to the other side of the sea. 
Or in Romans 1, my fear is that he would let go of your collar and allow you to plunge into the depths of of your sinful desires only to find that they're empty. And the reality is this, guys, that when I'm thinking about you again, if you're in this spot, the reality is that God has so much better for you than that. He has purpose for you, kingdom purpose. He has life for you. Again, going back to what we learned with Jesus, the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus, the bread of life, the only source of spiritual and eternal life, offers you that life today through his grace. The bread at the master's table is sufficient for all. You have only to respond in faith and belief and surrender. Only to respond, faith, belief, and surrender. So we move on in our text. The final section of our text, starting in verse 14 all the way through 21. We just recap a little bit, right? The first group that we saw was this 4,000. They're the curious group of listeners. Uh, Next, we had the hard-hearted rejectors. And then lastly, uh, we come to the disciples. Okay, they're, they're willing followers of Christ, but uh, we're a bit slow to understand what Jesus was showing them. And we're going to see that again at the end of our text, uh, making stronger our argument that Jesus was repeating a lesson due to their slowness. And uh, this next part, really, again, going back to what we said at the beginning, I feel like there's this feast laid out for us in this text. This next part really is aimed right, right at the Christian. So if you're not a Christian in here, now's your chance to point a finger at the Christians and laugh at them because they're about to get it. So we're going to read uh, verses 14 through 21, if you would do that with me, and then we'll chat about it. Right after they get to the boat, it says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Okay, let me just pause for a second. This whole sermon is like, did you realize that Jesus has fed thousands of people multiple times? Why is this even here? Well, I'll tell you, because the disciples are a little dull. And wives, please don't glance at your husband when I say that. Look, us men know that we're dull already. We're working on it and we apologize. What? They just fed, he just fed 4,000 people with a few loaves of bread. There's seven baskets left over. They get into the boat and they're like, hey boys, crap. There were seven baskets, we only grabbed one loaf. Dang it. <laughs> we're going to go hungry. And this is where the disciples get a verbal whooping. And Jesus, verse 17, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then he asked this question, 
when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And right about here, this is where you can see the disciples kind of kicking the dirt. I mean, like, <clears throat> 12. <laughs> Jesus is like, ah, oh, you guys are real smart. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Shut up. Seven. And then finally he said to them, Do you not understand? Do you not understand? Man. I'm so glad that Jesus uh, is a patient teacher. Just by show of hands, how many of you guys in your Christian walks have learned the same lesson over and over again? Yeah. My favorite moments are when you're reading through the Bible. I mean, you're like in John 3.16, right? You're like, for God so loved the world. Oh, oh my goodness. It's like you go talk to your wife. You're like, babe, I just learned something absolutely incredible from God's word. I've been a Christian for 20 years. It's like, what was it? God loves us. <laughs> yes. But man, again, obviously humanity is the same now as it was then. We're a little dull of hearing, a little slow. But, but first thing I want to see in this last section is this. Um, as the disciples are not perceiving, they're not understanding, Jesus says, look, are your hearts hardened? You have eyes to, to see, you're not using them. Do you have ears to hear? Do you not remember? The first thing I, I want to rejoice in is, again, that fact that Jesus really is that great, patient teacher. Uh, I love this. Jesus is invested in the growth and maturity of his disciples. It's not that Jesus saves us and just justifies us, but he's committing to seeing us sanctified which is this process that we partner with God as, as he makes us more and more like Jesus until we die. The scriptures tell us that this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is what God's doing. He's making you more like Christ. In fact, Romans 8, I love this, this passage that we all love so much. Hey, God's working all things out for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And right after that, it says, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he also, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed molded into the image of his son. This is what God is going to do. And we see this in our text as the disciples are just not getting it. We see that Jesus ultimately is an incredibly gracious and patient teacher. And I am very ecstatic about that. The last thing that I want to see is this. It's something to laugh at for certain when the disciples are just thinking about bread, right? It's like, oh man, how can you just be thinking about bread? A lack of bread, for that matter, after Jesus has done so much for you. But, but I think there's something for us to mine here, and it's, and it's this. What led to the dullness in the disciples? Why weren't the disciples able to get what Jesus was actually saying? Over and over again, we see Jesus using something physical like bread to teach a deeper lesson about the bread of life. For we just read that he talks about the leaven or the evil wickedness of the, of the Pharisees and of Herod that can grow and spread like, like yeast in bread. Okay, this... 
over and over again we see this, but the disciples weren't getting it because what we see is that they were just concerned uh, with surface level things. Or we'll put it this way, they were just concerned with the things that are seen. And as I, as I thought through this, right, a couple passages come to mind that I think we should take into consideration. Colossians 3 tells us to seek the things that are above. 2 Corinthians 4, it says, fix your eyes on the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. For the things that are unseen are eternal, the things that are seen are temporal. We can't forget about Matthew 6 when Jesus says, hey, the Gentiles worry about all these other things. You don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. I want you to seek first the kingdom. And these commands or exhortations are in Scripture because, again, it is human tendency, listen, to lower our gaze from fixing our eyes on God Almighty and and dropping them down to just the things that we see all around us. These little problems, these little issues likened to the reality that the disciples only had one loaf of bread and they were freaking out about it. Here are some examples that I thought of and Hang with me, this is, uh, (laughs) it's just great. Let's just imagine real quick that we're having a conversation with Jesus, okay? This is just classic human beings. We're having a conversation with Jesus, and he says, Hey, Jimmy, Mike, Sarah, I have something for you. Check this out. I am going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Don't worry, there's a lot of space. There's a lot of rooms. In fact, let's just go King James for a second, Jimmy. Hey, in, my, in this place that I'm making for you, there are many mansions. You guys know the verse? Okay, let's just be like the disciples as we raise our hand in this conversation with Jesus. And we're like, oh, I'm glad you mentioned mansions, Jesus. Um, I've been thinking our family's growing. I could really use an extra room. I think we need a bigger house. Jesus is like, whoa. I'm trying to talk about heaven. I'm talking about glory. Where are our minds? They're on, I need a five-bedroom house instead of a four-bedroom house. Or or what about this one, right? As as I've thought about this, I'm thinking about, uh, it's football season. My 49ers lost in horrible fashion last weekend, so I'm a little depressed. But let's just imagine Jesus and I having this conversation about warfare, competitive nature, right? I love to compete. I love battles. So Jesus is sitting there going, Mitch, hey, get off the sidelines. I need you off the bench. There's a battle for souls going on. This is the real deal. I need you to get off the sidelines and get in the game. And I say, Lord, I want to hear what you have to say. But you mentioned the word game. And and the football playoffs are on today, so can I watch those real quick? And then we can continue this conversation after the fact. It's like, you guys see how Jesus is like, I'm thinking deeper. I'm invested in you as my disciple. I want to see you grow. I want to see you sanctified. You're going to become more like Christ. I'm going to teach you things through the ordinary, like, day-to-day stuff in your life. But our eyes just go from the eternal, the unseen, the, the valuable, just sink down to just worrying about this stuff that is not that huge of a deal and we all fall into the trap of doing that we all fall into the trap of doing that i'm going to invite the the band back up we're going to worship 
Maybe Aaron can sneak away and grab me some communion because we're going to do it and I forgot to grab some. So that would be awkward if I'm up here doing communion without communion. But the last, again, and we're going to close up. If you have your communion, get, please get ready to take it. Thanks, Beams. Beams is administrative and smart and he plans. And I'm the opposite of those things. One of, the, one of the last things, again, leading to communion we see here is, uh, and as you're, as you're reading commentaries, you see this all the time, is, is really the power of memory or remembrance for the Christian. Because quite simply, the disciples in this story had seemingly forgot what Jesus was capable of doing. Or, or had seemingly forgotten who Jesus was. As they're freaking out about bread again, Jesus is like, do you not get it? You're with me. I'm going to take care of your needs. I've done this multiple times already. What would stop me from doing it again? And, and they just didn't quite understand it. And again, human nature is that way that, that when we're in this crisis moment and we're praying to God oftentimes and we're like, God, please, would you come through for me? Would you just do this? I'm desperate. God, I need you to work. I, I don't have enough food or I don't have enough whatever, fill in the blank. And then all of a sudden God comes through and he does the miraculous and he takes a few loaves of bread and he breaks them and, and all of a sudden solves the issue, the crisis that you're walking through and we worship God in that moment we go God thank you so much for doing this that was awesome and then what happens is a month later we're in another crisis and guess what we're freaking out just like we were the last time because we've forgotten what God did last time and then in so doing we've we've ultimately forgotten who God is and what he's capable of doing one of the ways that we can combat that guys is to set up ways to help us remember what the Lord has done. My wife is a journaler. I'm not. But it's pretty cool, right? She can go back 10 years ago and read a journal entry. And it's like this little, uh, this little pile of stones, this rocks of remembrances that ultimately remind her now what it is that God did 10 years ago. And it's encouraging. That's what Joshua did, right? When Israel finally crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, they set up these 12 stones at Gilgal. So ultimately, every time that someone was discouraged or any time that Joshua needed some, some help remembering what God was capable of or just any time they were passing and somebody goes, what's that big pile of rocks there for? Like, oh, let me tell you what God did as he brought us through the wilderness and across the Jordan River. And they remember what God did and it encourages the spirit of the follower to remember what our God can do and what our God ultimately has done. And, and that's what we get to do right now in the best possible way, right? As we take out communion, we didn't even have to set this up. God set it up for us as Jesus says, hey, do this in remembrance of me. 
And that's exactly what communion does. It's like we, we forget. Maybe we're overwhelmed with the weight of our sin or the weight of our shame. And, and all of a sudden, here we are on communion Sunday and you're holding the elements in your hand and you're going, wow, right now I have this opportunity to remember the perfect life of Jesus Christ and his broken body that was broken for me. And then I get to remember by drinking this little cup of juice, the blood of Christ that was poured out for me that cleanses me from all of my iniquity and sin. And I've been washed white as snow because of the perfect work of Christ. And communion often does a work in the heart as we remember these things. So would you guys pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we consider your broken body, your perfect life, what it is that you went through, Lord, on that cross on our behalf to give us life. Interestingly enough, today, Lord, as we read about how you're, you're the bread of life, Lord, we have eaten. Those of us who've trusted in you and put our faith in you, we've, we've eaten of you never to hunger again because we have eternal life and satisfaction in you. And this bread that we take reminds us of you, who you are, and what you've done. Let us never forget, God. We could never forget. So, Lord, uh, right now as we eat this bread, Lord, we remember your broken body, your perfect life. And then, Lord, not only that, but Right now we have in our hands, Lord, this, this juice that represents your blood. The perfect, precious, wonderful blood of Jesus Christ. Without this blood that we remember today, Lord, we would be dead in our sins still. So this morning, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for willingly pouring out your blood so that we could be made white as snow. Lord, as we drink this right now, we remember these things in your name. church at this time. We're going we're gonna to worship the Lord, sing two more songs. Uh, you feel free to stand, sit, kneel, whatever it is that you want to do as we just spend some time with our Lord this morning. Let's do just that.